Welcome to Gigami, the podcast for up-and-coming musicians who are serious about turning their talent into a career. I'm Dave Holly. I've toiled in the trenches of the music industry, man and boy, for more than 30 years. Each week I talk to an artist or exec about their experience of how the industry really works and what you can do to give yourself the best chance of breaking into it, build a good life and make a good living while creating the fantastic music you were put on earth to create. If you have any questions or just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. I will always reply. Until then, on with the show. Today's guest is Ian Ramage. Ian is one of a kind, a real industry all-rounder with more than 30 years of experience. He's contributed to the careers of The Cure, Elvis Costello, Kate Bush, Pink Floyd, Coldplay, Keane and Richard Hawley. Unusually... He's worked both in marketing and A&R and in the music publishing game and the record business. His current role draws on all of that as head of repertoire and marketing for BMG, working across both publishing and records. Ian has also lectured on the music business and entrepreneurship at the Institute of Contemporary Music. Okay, welcome to this episode of Gigami. Uh, My guest today is Ian Ramage. Welcome, Ian. How are you? Thank you very much, Dave. Hello, everyone. Um, we like to start these chats by asking you to talk a little bit about your career. How did you get into the industry and how have you ended up doing what, what you're doing now? Okay, well, um, it's a long story and a very fortunate one, I think. I graduated from Liverpool University in 1982 and I entered the business through working in a cassette factory. My mum's uh, neighbour, next door neighbour, was a was a fairly senior manager at a cassette factory in Caledonian Road, North London, and I literally sort of swept swept the floors, you know, and did 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 what no one else wanted to do, just to sort of buy time and figure out what to do. And I at that point, there were no music colleges or any of that kind of infrastructure that we're now happily familiar with, and I didn't really believe it could be possible um, to get a job in the music business. It just seemed so remote and ideal you know having discovered fairly early that i was not good enough either to play on the left wing for manchester united or be a professional musician i'm just a football fan and a music fan i didn't realize you'd be able to make a a a career out of that i really didn't but i suppose through enthusiasm really you know I, I was Mr Blooming Keen at this cassette factory and I was there first every day and I was asking questions and I got into the oh how does that work what's a slave how does that? you know I was just interested to, to sort of understand what the process was as part of this beast that I was so in awe of and really through that proximity someone left I got given a position of semi-responsibility someone else left Within 18 months, I'm sort of production manager on this cassette factory because I because I can add up and I keep on turning up on time, you know, and, I, and I'm clean and, I, and, <laughs> and all those things, you know, I'm not rubbish. I don't seem like a liability to the firm. So by default, really, I was promoted way above my capacity. And then the same process was exaggerated, really, when this cassette factory, independent cassette manufacturing plan, opened up a record plan, a pressing plan. And they did that outside of London, up in St Ives in Cambridgeshire. And they asked me to go and run it. I did that, I, I, I organised that, and I was quite good at you know the organisation of production and stuff. And, and it was through that that I got to know the product, production coordinators at Polygram, at CBS, at Warners, because I was taking the orders and, and, and sometimes physically delivering them you know, to Chadwell Heath, Polygram as was, in the company car they'd given me, talk about lucked out, you know, so I'm 23 at this point, um, running ostensibly a, a record pressing plant, it was completely preposterous, I still had no idea about the, you know, industry side of it, but it was, you know, I think consistent with what I now know to be part of the modus operandi of our business, I got to know people, and I, I got a subscription to Music Week, and that's one of the things that's, that stayed the same. We've still got Music Week, haven't we? The trade publication. And there was an ad. There was an ad in Music Week at the beginning of 1985 for a, an assistant production coordinator or something at Polydor. And I went for it, and I knew the woman at Polygram, and I knew three or four people within that setup through my, through the business I'd been doing at the, at the pressing plant. And it was, 
And I, again, I, I turned up very early for the interview, vastly overdressed with a suit and tie. I must have looked a right plonker. Um, but, you know, I, I guess it, it, I, got, I got the gig as a sort of junior under assistant, again, doing the bottom rung job, the, the stuff no one else wants to do. And I worked my way up through that. You know, my immediate superior left. Again, I was, I was left there holding the reins, looking like I cared a lot, and I did. And then I managed to, I found a way to move into London, so that I could go to gigs, I got to know the A&R people and the marketing people. I was just busy, you know, just busy as a fan. Not not trying to be creepy per se, but I suppose it must have come across as that in some ways. So I wasn't trying to be the sycophant to give us a job. But yeah, I did want to ingratiate myself towards the the more exciting creative side of the business. And through that, I, I became the, jun the junior product manager and, and spent four and a half very happy years at Polydor worked my way up to marketing manager there and we had some success and that caught the eye. I got a job at Warner's at East West. I worked for Max Hole at East West, who was a great guy, another another great person to learn some stuff off. I did 18 months there. I wasn't I was never quite so happy with the the very American culture of Warner's. Um, but some brilliant people, most especially Max and Fraser Kennedy, who I'm still mates with now. Um, that's one of the things I think is, is great about our business, actually, that you do make and keep friends. And it's a wonderfully connected, not to say maybe arguably even incestuous sort of setup. You can keep connected. People always pop up here, there and everywhere. I rather like that. I think that's wonderful. So I did 18 months as marketing manager at East West and I got... I got poached back by Polydor and I did another 18 months, two years there and it was great. By that time I was the kind of senior, I was head of marketing and I, I got to work on The Cure and stuff and it was just what a joy, what a privilege. So they had their first, I think maybe still only number one album with Wish, which is a great record and, and what, a, you know, what an amazing thing. So I was designing marketing campaigns and liaising with the A&R department and the artist managers doing the sort of senior marketing job um, back at Polydor. And, my final marketing gig came right after that. Again, um, I was pinched by EMI, um, working for Jean-Francois Session, the charismatic, shall we say, um, French managing director. And that was again, you know, baptism of fire, a fascinating person to work for, another lot of different inputs to take stock of. He, coming from France, it, that his presence and his perspective actually really helped in giving me a more a more international outlook. I didn't realise at the time, I, I, I did afterwards. And, and that was great, EMI, I was at EMI, the place I wanted to be at, and I got to work on a couple of Pink Floyd albums, most significantly for me, Kate Bush, The Red Shoes, not, not I don't think, her, not my favourite of her records, but nonetheless, I, you know, I got to meet Kate Bush, I went to Top of the Pops with her, I thought, like, oh my goodness me, they pay you, you get to do this, I mean, you know, just unbelievable living the dream stuff. And that was, that took us up to 10 years, effectively, uh, in record company marketing. At that point, I made a fairly significant jump out of records, and after a six-month sabbatical travelling, I jumped into publishing. We just, we just had Bill Nelson. Uh, I don't know if you know Phil. Oh, yeah, Phil, great guy. So Phil, Phil did a sort of a bit of an overview of the industry, uh, and he was talking about very much sort of two groups. One is the creation of music, and he puts writing and recording in that, and the other one is live performance. But obviously the, the creation of music breaks down then further into that writing, which we'd call the publishing side of the business, and then making records is obviously the record side of the business. And you've, you've worked both sides of that as you're saying how do they differ from each other it's it, it's, a, it's a really good question and there are there are crossover elements what a a scout in the A&R department does of a record label and did actually um it, what a scout does and what a scout did in a, in a record label is very similar um on the whole to what a scout does on in in a publisher looking for new talent it used to be being connected in Gigland, knowing the social secretary of the local colleges, you know, knowing, um, being out listening to demo tapes or CDs or whatever the, 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 the sound carrier of choice was at that time, and being connected, keeping an ear to the ground, and then if you find something hot, bringing it into your superior. Um, thereafter, 
that what I'd call kind of the after-sales service, once a, an artist, in the case of a label, or a writer, in the case of a music publisher, is signed, is secured by the institution, by the, the record company or the music publisher, the story does diverge, it's, it's different. Um, and again, to be quite honest, with my, my perspective on this, was fairly disparaging towards music publishing having spent that 10 years in record companies because my view when i left the business to go traveling i went i went off to try and find myself um having gone straight from school to college from college into that job you know and, and without a break i hadn't done the traveling thing so i traveled for six months i went to try and find myself it turned out i wasn't there so i came back and i got offered this job again through connection um, there's a gentleman called Andrew Jenkins, who I'd, who'd been the financial guy at Polydor, with whom I'd worked for some years. He was now at this relatively new BMG Music Publishing. And just because he knew who I was and they needed to start a kind of a, a, a new repertoire A&R team, I got offered this job. And I honestly did think, this is the complete truth, well, that's too good to be, I'm going to take that, get myself back in, get it known that Ramages back on the scene and around about, and, and then I'll get a proper job, you know, back in a label. Um, that was absolutely my mindset. My view of publishing at that point was, what do they do? They they call up now and again and try and ponce a video. And no, they that's that's all they've done in my world that I could see from the record company marketing point of view. That is all they've done. You know, and I, I was I was wrong. I had a narrow vision of that. So going back to your question, what is the difference? The difference in practice became something that I now greatly, greatly cherish. And that is that the creative interface, if you want, the bit, the bit where you spend as a, as a creative person, A&R or whatever you, whatever you want to term the person in the business, what they do within publishing is a, is a different relationship to the writer, to, 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 to what, to what a, an A&R person in a record label does to the artist. And obviously, Sometimes they're one and the same. An artist uh, who, who, who writes their own songs will have a publishing deal and a record deal. So they're doing, they're sustaining the same relationship, usually with two different people, although I'm currently breaking that mould and doing records and publishing in some cases for, for both. It seems to make sense with joined up rights management. But anyway, that's an aside. No, what's great about music publishing is that you can form a, a deeper, longer term fundamentally quite different relationship. The kind of dialogue that you have with a, a, a writer, an artist, a creative sign to you as a publisher is always longer term. I found, I found myself really thrilled at being able to speak, um, go to studios or, or, or houses even or wherever, rehearsal rooms, and talk to the musician about music about songs, about a direction for the next record, or maybe the record after that. And it strikes me that, especially in marketing, um, the marketing side of records, it became so frenetic that you are, it's kick, bollock and scramble, run, 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 is the label copy in place, have we got the release date, is, that the, is the radio plug, we've got his bit. The functionality of it, the immediacy of it, you know, the, and also the risk involved of the huge amount of marketing spend going out the door, and you know, if you get it wrong, meant that the communication was, I won't say more superficial, it's important what's being talked about, but they're generally more matters of immediate urgency and functionality and you know we've got the name big honestly you know rather than let's look at these four portfolio i'll tell you what let's this is what i've done with writers in before now back in the day when we were allowed to go out i'm going to put the afternoon off you and me going to go to the national portrait gallery uh, we're going to have lunch you're going to have a glass of wine. i'm going to walk around there and we're going to think about you know what imagery might look like for the next the next project that is making a difference and helping direct the creative persons, you can't, you know, I, I firmly believe that creators create, you know, music business people can open, do open doors and offer suggestions, you know, and, and make connections and that's their job and that's their role. You know, you don't invent things for them. But I think it's really important to be able to maybe break the mold of um, repetition or familiarity and talking more broadly and ultimately more creatively about their 
their musical career is what publishers do far more than record labels generally have the luxury of time to do. Um, that's a very clear observation that's been borne out. And now I'm I'm sort of as I, as I say on a few projects I'm I'm riding both horses so to speak as publisher and label and how very different that is. That you know it's the it's the mania and the frenetic craziness on the label side, and it's oh I wonder if we get that song covered by so and so. You know it's it's just a bit more. I won't. It's not fair to say cerebral, but it's definitely a a slower, more considered pace. And obviously, you know, again, in, in direct answer to your question, it, as I'm sure your your listeners will know, you, you, the, the fundamental th- thing to never forget, the publisher is responsible pol- for policing the, the value of that, of that, um, that songwrite, uh, that songwriting copyright, which is a different thing to the master recording copyright, two sides of copyright. And, uh, and uh, you know, the easiest mistake to make for those learning the business from the very start, I think, is to misunderstand that. I always over-labour that when I've done any tutorials or lectures and stuff on the business. And I've done, I've done quite a bit of that. I've greatly enjoyed it in the past. That fundamental, these are two different things. Don't be confused just because someone can be signed to Warner Chapel and to Warner's, therefore it's the same thing. It's not. It's a different copyright, and when someone syncs it, that is to say a film company, for example, wants to use that, that recording in their movie, they need to pay for the use of the recording. They also need to pay for the use of the song. There are two separate copyrights every single time. Just never forget that two sides thing. And it's a really good foundation stone upon which to build your comprehension of the rest of the business, I think. How do songs make money? Song, it, it, one of the other little cliches, it's cliche for a reason, it's true. The gift that keeps on giving. The idea of another good way of understanding that 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 um, discrepancy, the distinction rather between records and publishing, one song copyright can be manufactured into many, many, many recording copyrights. I'm looking in my mind's eye at a piece of sheet music that has "Yesterday" written at the top, or "Summertime," you know, or you know, one of the great Gershwin or Cole Porter songs, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different records or CDs called the same thing, which are different master recordings of the same publishing copyright. And the reason it keeps on making money is that every time a record company wants to make a pressing or create a stream or a download or whatever the format of choice is in that age, a mechanical license is paid to the owner of the song copyright, i.e. the publisher. So there's the money shot, the multiple usage of the same song. And of course, that's also the case in, as I said earlier, I alluded to this concept of synchronisation. You perform a song live or a song gets used in a TV show or, um, or a video game or any of those things. You've got to pay for the right to use the song as well as the recording. And when people, people do a cover version of a, of a, you know, of a big act, sings an unknown band's song live at you know if Ed Sheeran goes and covers some unknown kid's song when he's playing his four sold out nights at Wembley there is a performance value in the use of that song which will be cha-ching you know because a lot of people uh, are at those gigs and that is the way it's calculated so performance income is generated by the repetition that literally the performance of a song copyright in any context even if it's a, a, a live, it doesn't have to be recorded, a live performance constitutes the use of that copyright. Think of it like a, a you call it, uh, in industry, you call it, um, what's the term when you, patent, isn't it? It's a patented device. And every time that windscreen wiper works, the Ford Motor Company pay some kind of a royalty to Mr. Windscreen Wiper. That's not his proper name. It was something else. But you know what I mean? The guy that invented the technology, he would have sold a license for the use of that incredible thing. That becomes an ongoing value. Hence, the gift that keeps on giving. Because not only Ford, but also Chrysler and also VW and everyone else who knows me want to use a windscreen wiper or whatever it is. And so a great song will find multiple different usages. And what that is doing is it is continually driving the value of the publishing copyright, because every time it's used, it should be paid for. It can be one thing to bear in mind when you are a young musician in a band. If you've written a song, 
you're going to be getting all these extra bits of income because you own that song, whereas the other guys who are just playing it, they share with you the recording income. One of the one of the prime causes for, for bands to break up has been the very emotive notion of, such was the case with the birds, I remember. The, you know, McGuinn was really annoyed and Crosby was really annoyed because Gene Clark was driving around in a Thunderbird. He'd written the first couple of singles. After they stopped doing Dylan covers and writing their own songs, Gene Clark was the principal songwriter. The others had the raving ump about this. You know, that suddenly, this guy's wealthier. We're all playing the same gigs. We're all in the same studio. But that's the thing, the underlying thing. And it's interesting, some bands have a, an arrangement to account for that in, in the spirit of trying to protect some sort of democracy. I remember I was, again, very, very lucky in those, in those early, early years at BMG Publishing, the old BMG, when I first started there. In the first two years, squandering their money with absolutely no clue. And then probably minutes before I was going to be fired, I did get lucky with, with that band Coldplay. And that you know, obviously went when it then led to other, other successes, as it always does. But the, the point about that, Chris Martin, who very clearly you know, wrote the songs in the first stages of the band's career, and I think they changed that subsequently, by which time I wasn't involved. But at the beginning, he insisted very magnanimously on splitting the publishing for equal ways on the ground. And I, I witnessed him on more than one occasion explaining this away. Well, everyone does the promo, everyone does the gigs, everyone does this stuff. No one at that point, no one else was covering the songs. So every piece of effort that goes into popularizing marketing using these songs is, you know, Johnny and Guy and Will just as much as it is me. I'm, I'm lucky the idea, you know, occurs to me, but I, and I get to sing them, you know. And he was just, I mean, partly being, a, a, you might call that naivety, partly being a genuinely very nice bloke. That did change later. <laughs> it did change later. I think that there's an, the, the danger with that policy is when you find later on that there's a bigger responsibility on you as the band leader and principal or sole writer, it actually, you, that can breed resentment. I'm not saying it did in that case. I simply don't know. But I do believe that the um, deal terms would change to reflect more accurately who was actually doing the song creation. So the point being that valuation of how you cut up the, the publishing rights is quite important. It's important to get that so everyone understands it. If you are in a band, understanding how that works, taking advice from a, a lawyer um, as to what the ramifications are of, of signing this publishing deal. Are you all on an even split? Are you breaking it down in accordance with who's written most of the song? Those things are really important to get right at source. The worst nightmare is reversing back into it. You either need a, a blanket agreement, that is to say, right, while we're in the room, anything that gets written split four ways or three ways or whatever it is. If you're doing that, fine. If you're not, you need to be clear about, I, I bought this one in but it's not quite finished, I'm prepared to, you know, let, let's let's split the room, I'll have 80% and, and the other 20 will split between you guys for refining the middle eight or whatever it is. Getting that established and written down sounds simple and half important because it's an easy, relatively easy conversation. It just seems like a pain in the nuts at the time. Let me assure you, if that song becomes valuable because someone puts it in a film or a TV show or it becomes a you know a massive online hit it's a TikTok phenomenon or whatever suddenly there's thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds attached to it that's a very very different dialogue you're having it's so emotive and it can be really unpleasant and really stressful sometimes it's challenging when you're I can totally get it the camaraderie of being in a band that just seems so cheap and almost vulgar and it's, you know, it's fine for the first year or so. Oh, we'll muck it all in. It's 25, 25% each. All fine. But, you know, when it starts getting more serious, it really is worth being... It's a bit like in a relationship, you know. It's one of those things, if there's an issue, if there's something, you know, so there's just nagging you, it's just so worth saying, whether you are the writer or whatever. You know, out that, have that little conversation. You know what, we should have, we should just have time out and talk about this business crap and then park it and get back to writing the song and do it. It's a great discipline. You know, if you're a band and you're rehearsing three nights a week or whatever, ring fence the one hour a week or one hour a month when, hey, let's talk about the business crap. Let's just get through this. Stuff. And, and, you know, I, I feel I've written more of this song. I just want to be, you know, whatever it is, getting it, getting it clear and, and written down and all put, just, just write it down and all sign it, be clear, put it away, hopefully never to be looked at again. It's really good peace of mind because it's, 
it can be so ugly and unpleasant later on and it's um, to be avoided if possible. Why would a writer sign to a publisher? What do you guys bring to the party? Okay, that's a, that's a, it's a really good question and there's a, there's, there's a mix of different things. Again, at the risk of sounding vulgar, very often there is the advantage of advancing some money as an advance against the, the, uh, the future earning of royalties and this serves a very, very functional purpose, which is if it alleviates the pressure of having to do that bar job, allowing you to be a full-time musician and rehearse harder and spend time on writing your songs because the rent is paid for, the studio, uh, rehearsal room, whatever, uh, is funded effectively, is immensely valuable. So that's point number one. After that, the organisation, the infrastructure of being able to collect that money and police it very effectively on a global basis. We now have, I'm sure every company's got the same thing for, for the company I work for, um, BMG um, Rights. We have a thing called My BMG, which is a, an app I'm now looking at on my phone. And even with my legendary technical incompetence, I can click on this thing and it tells me the royalty earnings of all the writers I'm responsible for in every territory, it breaks them down by performance, mechanical synchronization. It, it you know there is a really really efficient, effective accounting process. It's like digital banking, so it's far. And I'm not saying BMG is better. Everyone's got a service like this. So the capacity to actually very effectively police those earnings and keep you aware of what's coming down the pipe, so to speak, is really really valuable. Then there's the connectivity. You know, if you need um, to work with another writer, if you're a, an individual songwriter rather than in a band, or even if you are in a band and you want some writing help, you know, a publisher is working with loads of other writers and producers, um, hooking up internationally with collaborations. But the, the, the other key thing, if you're a band who manages to get a publishing deal on the strength of your songs first, and this is, you know, I've, I've been part of this, especially that band Keen, you know, we had Keen's, some, some of you might remember, many of you probably not, but a really big band uh, in the early 2000s, five consecutive number one albums, actually. And we signed them as a, as a publishing development deal, uh, 2001, I think. And we were two years before we could get them a record deal. But that was my responsibility, mine and the team. You know, it's never a solo act. It was great work by a bunch of other people, um, many other people, in fact, more than me, let's be honest here. But going and getting a record deal, being connected to the labels, going and getting, I think we advised on the live agent. So the publisher is connected to all those other different bits of the business and being part of that family uh, gives you an infrastructure. And then I'm circling right back to what we were talking about maybe 15 minutes ago the wise counsel of advice about musicality you know is, is something that a publisher can do whether or not there's a record company in place you know intelligence about what's going on in the business get offering creative support and guidance can be really really valuable and they, these are assets that, that, that publishing can bring to the bring to the table. It does divide fairly brutally between performing writers and non-performing writers. That is to say, one of the disciplines that the publishers specialise in is, sometimes they call it professional management or writer managers. We've got, a, there's a brilliant lady, a, a great friend of mine and a, an absolute wizard um, called Lisa Cullington, performs that job at BMG. And she doesn't sign bands. She has no interest in um, hairy blokes playing guitars at all. She signs songwriters and she signs, you know, Camille Purcell, who's been enormously successful writing songs for other people, you know, principally pop repertoire right across the board. Um, and of course, these songwriters are writing not just for them. Sometimes they're writing for themselves if they have an artist project, but principally they're writing for multiple other record label projects. And Lisa is connected with the A&R department, to use her example, in every record label, major and minor, and is selectively sending the songs or the song ideas or the demos of all those roster of writers into the right home, maximising the chances of it getting what we call cut, i.e. recorded by, a, a, you know, a Little Mix or a, a Sam Smith or a whomsoever. So that's a really important discipline, which in a way is the oldest 
sort of exercise of A&R, what we call A&R, this mysterious thing, artist and repertoire, which by definition means artist and repertoire, singer and song, linking the singer to the song. And in old money, that was, you know, a guy with a bit of sheet music bouncing into the to the musical producer's office. Have I got a song for you? And he would put the sheet music on the on the upright piano in the office and he'd play it. Hey, you should do this one. And they buy the rights to use the song right there. You know, so that is using the, the distributing the, the value of the song in a, a 1920s, 30s style. The same principle is at play here with Lisa calling Joe Charrington and saying, you should get Sam Smith to hear this thing. Maybe you can co-write with this girl. That's the other thing. In the modern age, it's very rare for songwriters work to be recorded outright, I'll take that song and I'll record it as is. Usually what happens in that world in the modern age is if the song is good enough, it will induce a collaboration. That is to say, it will get the writer into the room with the artist and perhaps their favourite track writer or or, or guitarist or, or whomsoever else. And that's how you see the majority of pop songs in the modern age are three or four or 11 way splits because there's a whole load of different people involved in the writing process you know nominally or or really so that's what publishers do they make those connections and without that if you're a non-performing writer it's very tough to get your work heard, heard and taken seriously imagine how many songs ed sheeran's manager gets sent oh please please record my tune you know he's more likely to take the call from a senior song plugger at one of the music publishers who's had a whole string of hits and looks after a roster of really successful songwriters. When they sign to you, the writer slash performer develops a team around them, manager, lawyer. How do you interact with all of those? Yeah, and where, where does a publisher typically come on board? Now, in this digital age, where, as you, you said earlier, the self-release phenomenon is so substantial, it's so significant. What's happening both with publishing and record deals, more often than not, the first X thousand or X hundred thousand streams, be they Spotify plays or YouTube views, have already been accomplished. You know, and a lot of what A&R reconnaissance is now in the modern age, and, and this saddens me greatly and it makes me sound very sad old man, but it's true, I can't disguise it, is spent looking at those stats. What are the YouTube views? How many streams on Spotify? And I know because I see it when a when a a new artist project comes in on via an email with an MP3 attached. You know, the first thing that happens is the youngsters are looking at the social media following and the streaming data before anyone's thinking of playing a tune. You know, and to me, that's an absolute anathema because just because I'm the generation, I'm a, a sad old git who would never dream of signing anything without, first of all, falling in love with the music and then going to see them. Can they play and have they got character? Have they got, you know, can, can you imagine them making a second album? Do they care enough? Are they hungry? Is the manager a buffoon or is it someone you could work? Um, but that is me being very, very old money. In the modern age, that's, if not irrelevant, it's certainly secondary because... So much can be done by the individual themselves without the aid of a record company or a publisher. The problem is for all those talented people, and there are many talented people that are not connected to a record company or a publisher. The problem is in those statistics, we now understand that an average of 60,000 new tunes are uploaded to Spotify per day. 60,000 a day. So it's a question of generating some traction through a the quality of the music that you're making should always be a number one but b the connectivity the dots that are being joined by other people around you and one of the things i think that's interesting that's evolved in recent years is that you know what's the order how do you sign you know what comes first manager i don't think that is there i don't think there is an order anymore i think the most important thing is identifying someone who is a fan, the priceless bit, the money shot in all this is genuine enthusiasm. And this could be a lawyer. Lawyers effectively have scouts at the moment, you know, going out looking for new talent. Uh, In fact, looking at the social media stats, to be honest. If there's someone in a legal firm who's a bit of a busybody and connected and gets around and talks to all the label, falls in love with your tunes, that's a real asset, just in the same way that if someone, a live agent, you know, live is so important. Before 
COVID kicked in, I had several conversations um, that went along the lines of, for a new development act, is it more important to have a live agent than a record label? And, you know, the consensus of opinion was was probably yes, because of the fact that you can put your stuff up on Apple Music, on Spotify, you can definitely do that. It's much more difficult to get meaningful gigs. If you've got a live agent or a promoter who is genuinely on board and cares and thinks you're, you know, you're going to go places and wants to align with you, can actually open more doors. Getting you support slots, you know, so you're actually playing in front of people you know, rather than two men and a dog at a gig, no one's listening, it's pointless. These things can really count. So, you know, that live infrastructure, when it is flowing, is massively important. But I think the point is, a live agent, maybe a lawyer, a, a, a PR person, a social media person, you know, there, there's, a, there's a fantastic burgeoning industry, people that are independently working in, in social media. And this is really the, in back in the back between the wars, when I was a lad, when I used to do this, it was independent pluggers. There were independent people that would take records to radio. Very often, former record company employees who went off and set up shop alone. You know, and so you had these amazing characters, Ferret and Spanner, and all these people that that used to be the individuals that would. And then you too. And I remember the Cure always used to want to use those very bespoke individual independent radio pluggers because they worked what they liked not what the company for whom they were employed told them to work and they tended to only work the real top shelf stuff and the illusion i'm trying to make here is that social media marketing folk there's a there's a great climate of independent social media folk who are effectively doing the same thing working outside the major corporations but promoting newly created music online if you can find someone in that fraternity writing for one of the blogs or, you know, online portals, whatever, who's a fan and really gets it, that bit's priceless. Someone's got your music and, oh man, I just, I want to be part, I want to help, I want to be part of it. That bit doesn't change. That's, that's the bit that makes the A&R girl or guy that walks into the back of the gig to see the band that's coming on next, but they catch the support band and that, Hairs have gone up on the back of their neck and it's, oh my God, what's this? I'm hooked. I've got to know more. I feel it. You know, that, that bit, I'm, I am maybe overly romantic, but I do genuinely believe there is still room for that very unscientific, very human instinctive, I love this and i got to, wow, you know, let's find a way to work with them. The single most important element in that equation is the music you make needs to be as great as it possibly can be. I'm not stating the blinking obvious, but never fall in the trap of, you know, it's so important to put a new tune up every six weeks. I'm just going to put anything up because I haven't done it for six weeks. Wrong. You know, you are as strong as the weakest link. Someone listens to that half-finished song, that half-baked demo that's significantly inferior to the previous one. You are two steps forward, seven steps back. Do not do that. Quality control it's about musical integrity and, you know, caring about it and getting it right. You know, you will suffer if you put sub substandard stuff out. And you should as well, because that's the only way in this jungle of too much information we've got through which we can possibly curate. Quality is king. Make it great. Less is more. Three brilliant tunes. So much better than nine, you know, that are all right every single time. And whoever you're trying to attract be it a live agent or an A&R person in a publishing company or a record label, guess what? They've got a fairly chunky inbox of music they're trying to listen to and they will be far more impressed with one or two blow your socks off tunes than, oh great, a playlist with 42 things. Hmm, take that home at the weekend and listen to all of them. No chat. What can, if anything, a musician to do to make themselves ready to work with you? Okay, I've got... I've got one kind of strategic tip that I like to share in, 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 in answer to that general question. And, and, and it is this, um, obviously, the, you know, the, as per my, my, my last little diatribe, being brilliant, it, you know, the music being absolutely as great as it can be is completely vital. But adopt what I've called before the kind of the chess move um, policy. That is to say... Be planning your career strategy in advance and do not reveal all at the first turn. Why? If you attract the attention of 
a music industry person, a pl- one of the players we've just been talking about, one of the kind of instigators, tastemakers, wh- whatever you catalyst, it's human catalyst, one of those people that can dot join for you. If you attract someone with a great song, what they're going to do is almost certainly, what's the question they're going to ask? Have you got another one? So here's what you should do before you press play and engage. I've got things signed like this. When I in my, in my limited and, and unsuccessful um, attempt to be a manager, I did get a band signed by adopting exactly this policy. Worked and worked and worked for two years until we had five absolutely cracking songs. Didn't give any to anyone. You know, really, really secretive, really, really industrious. Make it completely bulletproof. Get four or five absolute and obviously there's also another lot of level b things that are work in progress that might come out later but get to the point where you've got half an album's worth four or five absolute bulletproof crackers and have them in the bank so to speak let one of them out let one of them's on mp3 you're sending around one of them's on spotify or apple Show or whatever just one of them and then when that dialogue happens based on the quality that someone hears i bet you haven't got another one as good as this well i, I knock this one up and there it is, the thing you've had ready for months and months and months. And guess what? It's even a bit better. What that would normally do in record company A&R terms or publishing A&R terms, it would probably induce a meeting. It would probably be, this guy's got two really good, I mean, really properly good songs. We should get him or her in. When you then go in, when you're in the record company or the publishing office or the live agent's office or the lawyer or wherever, they're already aware of these two amazing songs. The point at which you pull out your phone and shove the speaker cable into the thing and play a third one, which is just as good, if not better. Now, the dynamic has changed and they want to talk to you instead of you're desperate to talk to them. So it's all about getting your armory ready before you start the show. You know, and another way of looking at that, Steve Lamack, I used to be quite matey with, he's an indie radio DJ, he was an NME journalist, still broadcast on Six Music, great, great, great broadcaster and kind of the doyon of indie guitar music, the absolute governor. And Michael used to say to me, every time I leave a gig, some sweaty little oik comes up and presses a cassette or a CD in my hand. He says, Stovall, will you listen to my tunes? Will you listen to my demos? And I'm always, wherever I can, unless I'm in a real rush, I'm always gracious. Yeah, of course I will. Tell me, what, tell me about, how, you know, where, where, where are you at with it? Oh, well, we're doing this. We've done, we done, we done four gigs. You know, so, well, tell me this. Do you, think, do you think this demo would be significantly better if you gave it to me you know three months time after you've done 24 gigs and you've written a couple of more songs oh well of course it will we're developing all the time at which point he passes the cd back into the hand and says, tell you what, come and get me then and it, and it kind of saves everyone a bit of time and that whole thing about you know the discipline of preparing your armory in advance very difficult to do when you're excited and you should be excited if you're not excited about the music you're creating goodness knows there's no chance anyone else is ever going to be but you need to marry that excitement with a bit of strategy i think it for me it's how do you manage that whilst you're building your present can't really start building that presence you've got to do a lot of legwork first i think and that one of the problems we've got i think as a business as a result of this kind of single track economy the streaming model is creating in which the singles chart and the album chart the markets are not quite mutually exclusive but going that way and what really worries me you know as a person of a certain age we're developing songs we're we're creating tracks are we developing artists i, th- I think it's it, that that's a real you know where are the are we really building an infrastructure in which there's going to be you know um, Glastonbury headlining acts coming through the ranks now for 10 years time because it seems to be too based on there's one track and it's all about that track and it's a featured artist thing anyway and it's sampled from someone else well yeah but what what actually is it where is the artist identity where is where is this going and record companies are obviously exploiting now we're no different yeah let's get a feature on it let's get someone let's get Kylie to sing or whatever it is and it's oh god I find it a bit limiting personally so I think it is it's very difficult. It's very, it's very challenging. And you know, the, but the, the positive spin on that just has to be, you've got to be so self-determined and so confident and so strong in your own belief of talent that, you know, you persevere while others fall by the wayside. Um, and you've got to work really hard having been really talented. And then when you've got those two in the bag, you need to be a bit lucky too. So if you're lucky enough as a young musician to have attracted your attention, um, ga- gained your interest, 
there's maybe more than one publisher circling them. What kind of things should be going through the, the musician's mind? What sort of questions should they be asking the publishers to find out who's the right one to work with? Two clear, clear dynamics in play um, there. One is um, the commercial elements, um, which are very important. It's a competition. It's now a competitive situation if there's more than one publisher involved. This does not mean sign to the one who's offering the biggest advance. I firmly advise young musicians to obviously take an advance for reasons I described earlier, for money that's necessary to keep the walls at bay and allow you to be a you know, a, a working musician. But the other point, the other criteria in the commercial equation is, I would argue, even more important, principally the time, you know, the time you're committing. You know, if, you, if you're signing away 10, 15 years to that publisher, that's weakening your position. You want a short-term deal so that if it all goes really well and you're really happy with that publisher, you renegotiate more favourable terms for another three or five years. So that's one thing. What are they, are they demanding to have it for forever and a day? Or can you do a relatively shorter-term deal? You know, what are the, the split, the royalty splits? All of this, you can get advice from a, from a lawyer, um, from a manager. The Musicians' Union offer fantastic advice. Um, Music Managers Forum, your manager should be... Sp- um, tuning into there, there are lots of really great institutions around the business now that didn't used to exist that can proffer advice on these matters. But the other part of the dynamic is at the risk of sounding a bit fay and woolly. I, I, I do think is an instinctive thing. Do I trust this woman from the publishing company? I'd be asking her, what, what else have you signed? Where, where, what makes you tick? Are you a real fan? It's a lot of its eyes in the eyes stuff. Do you trust them? Do you think they're going to fight for you? Do you? How big's their roster? Are they doing two million other things? Are they really going to have time for you? What What is their clout within the company? Who else is in the company? That's another thing. If you're talking to a number of music publishers or record labels, I think it's a pretty good move to get acquainted early doors, ideally pre-signing, with more than one character. Because it's a very popular um, misstep is to be at all your communication goes through Jane, who's heard your demo and has signed you as the A&R scout. Sadly, three weeks after you signed that deal, Jane got poached by another person or she went off to do whatever else. And now nobody in the company knows who the hell you are. That is a bad day at your office. So the idea of becoming known, getting yourself familiar with, you know, two or three others, so you're not all about that one human connection is another smart little common sense thing that I'd recommend doing. Is it, is it worth getting to know people beyond the A&R team? I think so, certainly. I'd, I'd absolutely ask about their synchronisation team. You know, you can make much more money, and many of the acts that modern acts are making more money out of synchronisation, certainly than they were out of physical sales. Streaming is now competing again. But, you know, loads of acts that are making great money on, on TV commercials, you know, or on video games, who's in the sync team you know i'd like to meet your head of sync and i'd like to meet the the young guns in the sync team i'd like to go and have a beer with them or coffee or whatever and find out what's making them tick you know could would one of them like to come to one of my gigs you know because if they do and they're into it you're onto a very good thing your woman or man in the camp is is only one person and they may not be there forever there's no such thing as a key man or woman clause anymore don't forget that went out with the art that doesn't happen you can't get out the deal if your if your person suddenly isn't there so you better be allied to some um, more than one person any other questions that they should be considering if they're if they're thinking of signing always good to write things down write the criteria down don't just keep it in your head i'm a big fan of lists whether they be on a phone device or a piece of A4 paper, the pros and the cons, really A, B it. So each, each potential publisher go, this is the reasons for signing for those people, this is the reasons against signing for those people, and then look at the lists for each of them. I mean, really simple, but if, if it's in black and white in front of you, and especially if it's a band scenario, it's not just your choice, they're offering more money, but there's this or there's that, or they haven't really... You know, have they got anything else in the genre I'm working in? Is that a strength or a weakness? If there's nothing else, does it mean they haven't got a clue how to work that? If there's loads of other things, I'm going to be the smallest fish in a bigger thing. All those things, you know, it's common sense really, but weigh up every criteria you can you, you, you can think of in it as you would in any business scenario, because that's what it is. It's a business scenario. Have you, have you noticed anything that successful musicians do when you work with them? So 
things like good habits, attitudes, etc., that, that up-and-coming musicians could learn and benefit from? I'll tell you what, yeah, I have. Interestingly, the really good ones that are genuine... And every, hey, listen, let, let's, let's preface this. Everyone has a bad day, me included. People are entitled to be moody. Creative people are, by definition, have their dark moments, you know, and, and, and they kind of have to, otherwise probably they've not got the creative gene. But it's interesting that when musicians become... Maybe this is all, all the creative arts. If you become successful, being communicative and nice then I've go a long way and the really successful ones who are genuinely confident in their own abilities tend to be courteous and responsible and good and, and good people to hang around with. You know, and I, I think that I would avoid as a musician overstaying your welcome. I think it's a mistake to be in the label or the publisher or the management there yeah, every night or every day or every, you know, every week. The little and often thing is is far more effective, but make it a bit of an event when you're in and people think, Oh, crikey, she's amazing. You know, she's important. Wasn't that great? You know, she's just swanned in and for 40 minutes she's talked about the song she's working on. We're all really excited about hearing it. Allow your your genuine charisma, which will be a representation of your musicality, to come through. Be yourself. That's, you know, be, being genuine and not putting on some phony act that you imagine a successful musician should be. People see right through that. People do, honestly, being yourself and being the basic courtesies of humanity are really, really rewarding. Because people think, oh yeah, I, I want to work with her. You know, this is this is great. If, you know, if the first album doesn't work, damn it, we're we're going to carry on because she's you know she's trying really hard. She's the creative. It, it's brilliant. It's just the stars having the line. Let's try again. So I honestly think I know it might sound simplistic, but that would be my tip. Be nice. Nice to be nice. It works. Ian, that's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time and for your good advice. Absolute pleasure. I hope that's been of some use to someone somewhere and I wish you the very best of luck with the rest of the series of podcasts. What a great idea. Good luck to you, mate. Thank you to all of my guests who have taken the time to talk with me and thank you for listening. I'd also like to thank Miles D who has written and recorded the Gigami theme music. And as ever, if you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode, if you have any questions... Or if you just want to get in touch with me, go to gigami.co. That is G-I-G-O-M-I dot C-O. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.